Dear God, I thank you for another opportunity to open your word tonight. This is uh, a waste of time unless your Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus better and opens our our hearts to love you more and, and gives us a desire to want to obey and follow you. And so I pray that you would illuminate your word to us tonight. And I ask that as we do that, um, or, or as we read it, um, that you would um, change our hearts and, and draw us to, to know you more and seek you and obey you more. May you do the work in us and get the glory as, as we're transformed into your son's likeness. I ask you that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, um, we are in Mark 11, as I said, and we're going to go, we're actually covering quite a bit tonight. We're going from 11 um, into 12 tonight. Um, last week, we looked at the triumphal, the triumphant entry, what is usually called that, or what we may, um, gets referred to as Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus marched into Jerusalem, actually rode into Jerusalem. Um, with the crowd surrounding, uh, surrounding him, proclaiming him as Messiah, celebrating him in their minds probably as the revolutionary king who's going to come and, and set Israel back up to its rightful place again. Um, so they are proclaiming him, they're worshiping him, and, and because we're at the triumphant entry, that means actually that we are in uh, the last week of Jesus' ministry already. Um, so for the rest, everything else in the Gospel of Mark is all just going to take place in one week um, from here on out, which is kind of crazy. I was just talking with Reed where he is tonight, just going, it's kind of crazy, it's February and we're just in the last week now. Um, at Ozark, where, where Scott and I both went to school actually, they have an entire, uh, an entire class, an entire semester devoted to the last week of Jesus' life because there is so much that goes on in it and because there is so much teaching um, that takes place um, in this passage, so much to break down that they'll, they'll, you'll spend a whole semester just focusing on this. So we'll be spending almost a whole semester on this passage um, to, to uh, yeah, yeah, for, for this semester. So Sunday he rides in, obviously. Friday is the crucifixion um, that we'll be looking at. So we are, until then, we are in these next few days. We're going to cover two of them today, actually, or tonight. Um, also, what you see as we get into the, this last week of Jesus' life is that his claims and his actions become a lot more explicit. Um, whereas he has been um, sort of keeping this a, a secret a little bit, what is referred to a lot of times as Mark's messianic secret, that, that Jesus heals a guy and then says, don't tell anybody. Or, or somebody proclaims the demons, proclaim that he's the son of God, and he says, shut up. And, uh, and over and over again, he keeps it quiet. And then all of a sudden, he comes in and he rides into town like the Messiah, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. And when the people are singing and, and singing his praises and all these things, and the Pharisees say, you need to make this stop, Jesus. He says, no, this is supposed to happen. And so Jesus' actions get a lot more bold and explicit in this um, in this time, including something that we're going to see tonight, we are going to look at some kind of strange stories, um, three or four that, that can seem a little bit unrelated, but really, as if you've been with us from the beginning, you'll see things that do not look like they are connected um, have a lot of common themes running through them. Uh, one of the most simple things you can do whenever you're interpreting the Word of God is uh, look for repetition. That is a 
really one of the most basic things you can do. One of the first things I do if I've printed out a text and I'm looking at it, if, if I see words that are, are repeated over and over again, I'm just circling those and connecting them because when I see ideas with, or, or words or topics brought up over and over again, that gives me a good indication of what the theme is that the author's driving at in that moment. And so this is one that you'll see some, some words or some phrases that will be repeated a few times and you get kind of an idea of what's happening. Um, I want us to start with verse 11, which is where we actually were last week. Um, Mark 11 um, verse 11 was the last verse that we read, but it kind of feeds into this week's text. Remember, Jesus um, comes into Jerusalem. It's this real big scene that's taking place, and it ends on what can look a little bit anticlimactic, actually, because Jesus marches in, like I keep saying marches in, he rides in, and everybody's celebrating, and everybody's singing to him as the Messiah, and uh, blessed be the one who comes in the name of Yahweh as he's coming in, and then he walks into Jerusalem, and Mark says this in verse 11, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so the the tension kind of starts to rise as he makes his way into the temple, especially for those of us who know where this story goes. And then we see him actually get there and be like, eh, it's kind of late, and goes back into Bethany outside of Jerusalem. Um, Here we'll see him step back in here today. So, um, Alec, you want to be our reader tonight? All right, man. Um, let's do Mark 11. I want to do uh, start us off at 11 and go through 14. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he, had, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig, leaf, fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. All right. Um, So first of all, it says on the following day, which means now we're on Monday, okay? Um, He's making his way into Jerusalem again, into the temple area. But on his way, they see a fig tree and... Uh, Jesus goes to get goes to it to get food. It says he's hungry, and it doesn't have any on there. And why doesn't it have any figs? It's not the season, not the season for figs. But Jesus um, curses the tree. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe Jesus got hangry or whatever that is. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he curses the tree, and and it uh, and and yeah. It says he says it loud enough that they can hear it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Um, this has been, this is an odd story, and, and one that actually a number of Christians have been a little bit embarrassed about over the years. Um, Bertrand Russell, the, the philosopher who wrote the famous Why I Am Not a Christian essay, actually in his essay he referred to this story. Um, and he says this, um, this is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs and you really could not blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some people known to history. That is, he's saying, you look at this, and in both his wisdom, because he should know it's not the time for figs, and then in his like patience and his virtue, Russell says, I've seen a whole lot of other people in history act better than that. Um, and, uh, and, and so there are a number of scholars who really, they've gone through, and, and they don't know what to do with this. And so some of them say, this didn't really happen. 
Um, like the, the disciples maybe, they saw a jacked up fig tree and they thought maybe this was something that Jesus did on the way in there. Or, or there's some who say this got added in later, that this wasn't originally in the Gospels, but somebody added it in. Um, or it's some kind of legend grew over time. Anything to say that this didn't happen. A lot of scholars have kind of said, but we see no indication in the text as you go back and look in the manuscripts that this was ever added in. This seems to have been there from the beginning. It seems to have really taken place. And so the question is, what do we do with this? Um, Actually, the bigger question is, is there something else going on here? Rather than just Jesus being hangry, okay? and getting ticked at this tree, is there something else that's going on? And, and I believe there is. I believe we actually get a hint um, in, at the end of it, in verse 14. What does it say? He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then what's the next line? And his disciples heard it. Um, I think that's a hint there. Mark, Mark says, basically, Jesus made sure that his disciples were listening when he said this. He, he wants them to hear him say this. Now, we'll move into, we're not done with this story, as we'll see, but we're going to move into a next one. Um, read Alec verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. All right. So, man, it just sounds like Jesus is just having a rough day, right? Um, first he loses it on a fig tree, then he goes in and flips out on everybody in the temple. Um, and, you know, so this is, it is kind of one of those just kind of strange, two big key, um, almost um, chaotic, I don't know what you want to say, events that are taking place there. This story obviously is more famous than that of the fig tree. Um, all of us have heard from the time we little the story about Jesus cleansing the temple and going over and turning the tables of the money changers. The reasoning behind it is a little bit more fuzzy. Um, why Jesus did that, that's, that's something that we're not always kind of told much about or to be able to kind of have that clarified. Um, usually what we're told, at least what I was told growing up, was that it was kind of one of two things. One is that they were selling animals in the temple, and that's not what the temple's for, and Jesus gets mad about that. And, and I, I think that that is half true. Um, the other one is that they are... Um, that they're ripping people off in the process, that... that um, Pilgrims were coming in. The Passover was one of three major pilgrimage feasts in which all the Jewish males were, were expected to come to, temp, uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. And so pilgrims would make their way there, and, and it's easier to just buy an animal there for sacrifice than to bring one all the way from your home town. And so, of course, they, they know they can kind of take advantage of you and, and charge you a high price, or you, you had to kind of, um, you would exchange your own local currency for the, the currency there in Jerusalem, or, or uh, a specific piece of silver that was said to be out of tire that was kind of more pure and, 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 and all of that. And so, but that they were charging exorbitant rates on that exchange. That's what I was always told. And, and that may have even been happening, but, but I don't know that that's actually what's going on here. That's where, by the way, that's where we get that den of robbers. Jesus is saying, you're robbing people. You're ripping people off. All of those things. 
Um, but, but Jesus actually gives us some clues as to what it is that says this in verse 17. And he was teaching him as he was doing this, which I just think is kind of interesting to think about, right? You know, point one, you know what I mean? As he's like flipping things over and stuff like that. And, and so like, I, I, it's kind of weird to me. But, but what Jesus is saying, what Mark is saying, is that there is actually teaching taking place in this and in these actions, that it's more, these two things are connected. And here's what it says in verse 17. Actually, I've already flipped over real quick. Can you read verse 17 one more time? (laughs) And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. All right, so this is, this is our, our hints. He quotes two different texts here. The main one he quotes is Isaiah 56, 7. My, is it not written that my house should be a house of prayer for all nations? Um, We've mentioned this to you before, but any time the Bible is quoting the Old Testament, it is always helpful and worthwhile to go back and look at the context of the verse that he's quoting. Because when Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, all we know is Isaiah 56, 7. But, but many of the Jews would know Isaiah 56 and the whole message that goes along with it. And so when he throws out a line, A, he may have actually been quoting more than just 7, but Mark just kind of sums up for us. B, even if he says 7, a lot of them would have attached the rest of the chapter to it. Um, and so this is what Jesus, or this is what Isaiah 56, and I won't read it all, I'll just read verses 3 through 7 to you and, and listen to kind of the theme of this passage. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That's the mountain where the temple is. I will bring to my holy mountain, um, just lost my spot, there you go, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So what Isaiah 56 is talking about in this passage um, is um, that, that yes, God is working specifically with the people of Israel, but His goal and His heart is for more than just Israel. His heart is for the nations around Him. And that was always the plan. All the way back from the day that God first calls Abraham in Genesis 12, He says to Abraham, I am going to use you to be a blessing to the entire world. It was never just about Abraham and his people. It was about the whole world. And he was working to, the, to that end. That's what Isaiah 56 is pointing at. That there's going to be a day. I'm, I'm reaching out to those around you. This, this plan is bigger than just Israel. And that's why I say that what Jesus is doing is about the animals. But not fully about the animals. Um, see, here's, here's kind of what the, the layout of the temple courts would have looked like. This is the temple itself, and it was separated into several different areas into which people could go. There was the temple of the Israelites, um, which would have been this little sector right here. And by Israelites, they just mean men. Jewish men could go this far, um, this close. Um, but the, to go right next to the temple into the courtyard where the altar and all of that would have been, only priests could go in there. 
um, behind the, the temple of the Israelites, the temple of Israel, was this court of women. And there were different little sections here where some other things were happening. Um, but this was where the women could go. And then you had the court of the Gentiles. And that was kind of this long area that surrounded it. Over on this south side was Solomon's colonnade, and so there's a lot of kind of overhanging these giant porches um, that were taking place. And there were signs all along here. Um, we've actually found one. Our archaeologists have found some that say, like, Gentiles shall not go past this. Um, I think it's any Gentile who walks past this will be responsible for the death that comes to him. Um, so, like, you can't, you can't go across here. Um, what we have from early rabbinic tradition is that, is that the animals that were sold for sacrifices and the exchanges that took place originally took place on the Mount of Olives, which is the mount that Jesus came down as he made his way into Jerusalem. That's what all the pilgrims would have come down, making their way into Jerusalem. But recently it, it appears that it had moved, and now, whew, I about bit it off the back of this thing. Um, it had moved, and all of the animals, they would not have been allowed to take them into the court of women or into the court of the Israelites. So all of this would have been taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Because, I mean, who cares whether the Gentiles can properly pray or worship or anything like that? That's, that's not why the temple's there for them. It's for us. It's for Israel. And so who cares what racket or what noise is taking place there? But that's incomplete. Um, that's completely ignoring Isaiah 56. That's completely ignoring Genesis 12. That's completely ignoring God's heart for the people around them. And so Jesus steps in and he says, no, 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 you've forgotten that this isn't just about you, that there's something bigger going on here. And so he's driving out all the animals out of the court of the Gentiles. The second issue that Jesus seems to be addressing is really fascinating, and it comes from Jeremiah 7. Um, and, and that is this last little line. He says, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a what? Den of robbers. Den of robbers. And as I said, kind of the common understanding is den of robbers because they're ripping people off and they're robbing and all that stuff there. But, but think about this for a second. I'm really grateful for Jim Johnson actually pointed this out a few years ago. That was the first time I kind of noticed. Um, a den of robbers is not where robbers go to steal. Den of robbers is where robbers go to what? To hide. It's where they go to be protected, to be safe. And Jeremiah 7, the context, is, uh, reveals exactly this to us. Um, let, me read, uh, let me read Jeremiah 7, verses 9 through 11. So just a couple verses that lead up to it. It says this, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery? This is God talking to the people of Israel. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, that is the temple, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have, have seen it, declares Yahweh. What, what he's saying, what all of it, if you actually go back and read all of Jeremiah 7, the whole idea is that you had these people during Jeremiah's time who thought they could live in whatever way they wanted as long as they showed up and said their prayers and made their sacrifices at the temple and they were going to be fine. 
That's, that's our safe place. As long as we got the temple. In fact, it even says, don't listen to these words. This is what Jeremiah says. Don't listen when people start proclaiming, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, we have the temple of Yahweh, as though that is your safe place. Like kids, do you remember when you were a kid and you played tag and, and you needed a safe place to get to and so you touched them? Base, base, this is base. I'm on base, right? Like, that's, that's what they were doing. So I can live... So I can live however I want to. And as long as we got the temple, and as long as it's okay, and as long as I've, I'm making my sacrifices there, then everything's going to be all right, right? And, and God says, don't think that you can continue to live in your rebellion and then come in and offer a sacrifice and play games like that, and I'm not going to see it. And I'm not going to know. Don't think that this is a safe place for you because of the way you're living. And so when Jesus comes and he starts throwing out the money changer and he starts screaming, you've made this a den of robbers, he's saying the same thing that God was saying to the people six, seven hundred years ago. You're, you're playing games and you're operating in rebellion and hypocrisy. You refuse to obey, but you think that in your religion you are safe. That in your prayers, that in your sacrifice, that you're okay. And it's not going to work that way, is what Jesus says to them. Read verses 20 and 21, Alec. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. All right, um, so now we're on Tuesday, and here we get the rest of the story. Um, that as they walk by, they actually see that the fig tree has withered down, that, that Jesus wasn't just kind of saying, I don't like this tree. He was actually pronouncing a curse on the tree, causing it to die, withered down to the roots. This is actually the only destructive miracle that ever takes place in the Gospels. Every time Jesus does a miracle, it brings wholeness, it brings healing, it brings restoration. This is the only one we see that actually brings destruction with it. Um, and, and, but what, what we actually just saw here is that we have this story of the fig tree up at the front. And then we move past the fig tree and we go into the temple. And then Mark brings us back to the fig tree again right after it. This isn't the first time Mark is kind of famous for using this, this sandwiching technique in which he takes one story and he splits it in half and puts another story in between it. Um, we saw uh, when, I think it was Mark, actually I have it written down, Mark 3, where it says that Jesus' family went to go see him and get to go get him because, you know, he's lost his mind, he's doing all this teaching stuff. And so they go, they go to get him and then Mark kind of stops with the family and he goes and he talks about the religious leaders confronting Jesus. And then he comes back to the family arriving. And we saw the same thing. Do you remember when Jairus comes to Jesus and says, My daughter is sick. She's going to die. Please come save her. And Jesus starts to go. And then Mark stops the story and says, And as he's about to go, this woman who had been suffering from a bleeding problem for years touched Jesus and she's healed. And the story stops. And we talk about her for a little bit. And then we go back to Jairus' daughter again. And so Mark does this sandwiching technique at various points in his gospel. And whenever he does that, it's his way of saying that these two stories are interrelated and they interpret one another. That as we see these two things take place next to each other, they're interpreting each other. So here's what actually goes on. In verses 11 through 14, Jesus goes and he curses the fig tree. And this is what the, the announcement is. This is what we get to find out. 
when something does not bear the rightful fruit for Jesus, he pronounces judgment on it. Okay? And then you see him march right into the temple. And the message there is this. When something does not produce the rightful fruit for Jesus, he pronounces judgment on it. And then you come down here and we get to see, and by the way, when Jesus pronounces judgment on something, it does not go well for that thing. So in case you're wondering when Jesus is making these statements about the temple, how that's going to end for it, we get our answer here when, when we come back to the fig tree in just a little bit. So Jesus, when, when there is no fruit, Jesus pronounces judgment. When judgment is pronounced, destruction will follow. And, and so what happens to the fig tree is what is happening. Now, the temple is what is kind of being aimed at, but the temple is really kind of representative of the religious leadership, the leadership at the temple, and in some ways Israel as a whole. Um, specifically taking shots at the leaders, but, but the leaders really do kind of represent the community as a whole a little bit. Let's read verses uh, 22 through 26. And you say to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, he, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. All right. Um, so Peter says, they, they walk by, and Peter is surprised, actually. Look, that, that, that tree you cursed, it's like dead. And, and he's kind of shocked by that, and Jesus says, All right, have faith. In things like this surprises you, and then he goes on what seems to be a little bit of a tangent about prayer, about having faith and believing in what you pray in, and making sure that you ask for forget that that you forgive others so that God will forgive you. Those kinds of things, and 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 so it almost seems I, I, I confess to you that the the first times and many times that I've read it, I've wondered what is going on here. Why does he seem to kind of break away? from the bigger picture here, but actually, um, as I've studied and as I've looked at, you know, a, a couple commentaries have helped me kind of see, this actually seems to be connected to the rest of the story. Um, it's not just teaching on prayer. There's kind of something bigger going on here. He says there, I say to you, if you, uh, let me make sure I'm actually reading it right. Um, verse, Truly I say to you, then verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, does, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. We have always turned that into a generic, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and go into the sea. We've always taken that kind of a generic, if you say to a mountain, be tossed into the sea, then it'll happen. You can have, we use this word, faith that will move mountains, right? Um, but Jesus isn't, I don't think, just talking generically about mountains. He's on his way to the Temple Mount. He's probably facing, looking at the Temple Mount as he says it. So when he says this mountain, I think he means this mountain. And, and he's already prophesied and, and start to show that the temple and its destruction is near. Now, here's kind of an interesting thing. Most Jews held that prayers were more effective when they were given on, like, on the Temple Mount, at the temple. Because that's, that's where God is, right? 
That's, that's where he dwells amongst his people. That's where he meets us. That's where we make the sacrifices. And so obviously it makes the most sense that prayers would be most effective here. But Jesus is going into a different thing as he is pronouncing judgment on the temple. And it's gonna, that's going to get more and more explicit. As he is pronouncing judgment on the temple, he's also giving this little teaching here that says, by the way, like prayer i.e. your connection to God doesn't go away when the temple goes away, when this mount is cast into the sea, when destruction comes to it. Prayer is not built on the place that is this temple, but on these two things, Jesus says, faith and forgiveness. Our connection to God is built on this, a faith and trust in Him and in, first of all, His forgiveness to us, but that also has a whole lot to do with our ability to forgive others. This is what the connection to God will be based on when this temple is gone. And in fact, I believe he would say this is what it's always been. Um, Faith and forgiveness, not a building where something is. Um, Let's read verses 27 through 33. Sorry, there's plenty more we could get into about Jesus with prayer. And what does he mean when... um, Ask anything and it will be done for you if you ask in faith. Yeah, there's a lot we could get into. We just don't have time. So, 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay. This is the third time in the section that we've read, actually, that Mark says, the couples these two things together. Jesus walked into Jerusalem and they went into the temple. That was verse 11. That was verse 15. That was verse 27. And after each one of these, like judgment has come on something. Okay? Jesus walked to Jerusalem, went to the temple, and then we see the fig tree. Jesus walked in Jerusalem and went to the temple, and then we see cleansing the temple. Jesus walked into Jerusalem and then went to the temple. And so something bad's about to happen to somebody, okay, is what you can kind of almost expect a little bit. And these scribes, this is also the first in a series of confrontations that are going to take place in the temple between the religious leaders and Jesus in these last weeks. Um, most, by the way, um, even like liberal scholars who don't really trust the Bible very much, Um, almost all scholars will agree um, pretty much that Jesus did take some sort of crazy action in the temple and that that is probably what got him killed in the end, that that's what kind of was the pusher. Now, now, we believe that there's something bigger going on than just him cleansing the temple, um, but that there is a lot of uh, that, that God is at work behind these things, and Jesus knows that, and he's, he's becoming bold in this because he knows his time has come, but he's going he's gonna to have some head-on arguments with the religious leaders uh, over the next couple chapters. This one is centered around this, basically. Who has God's authority? Like, who has the authority? Where does it come from? Um, they ask him, where did you get the authority to do these things? And by these things, they're probably referring specifically to the triumphant entry, and then especially the cleansing of the temple. Um, 
Like, you, you don't just do that, right? People don't just go in and just start knocking stuff over and throwing things out of the temple. Like, in, there's, there's got to be some level of authority. So, wh- like, where do you get that from? And Jesus asks them this question, basically pins them in, and says, okay, I'll, I'll answer that if you answer me this. Where did John get his authority from? Was that from God? Was that from heaven? Or was that just man-made from earth? And they know in that moment that they're caught because... Mark lays it out right there. If they say, yes, it was from God, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you believe Him? Why didn't you obey Him? And if they say it was from man, then they know that everyone around Him is going to freak out because everyone believed that John was from God. Um, But Jesus is doing more than just kind of weaseling His way out of a question. Those things are connected. Because if they confess that John's authority was from heaven, John was also the one who pointed to Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God. John's the one who says, this is the one whose sandals I am worthy, uh, unworthy to untie. This is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so if they were to admit that John's authority comes from heaven, then it, then it is a confession that Jesus' authority also comes from heaven. And if they're not willing to answer that, then Jesus also knows they're not, it doesn't matter what I tell you, you're not willing to listen to this anyway. So I'm not answering your question if you're not going to be real here and answer these questions either. Um, Let's go into chapter 12 and read. We're going to read a long section here, 1 through 9, because this is all one big story. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to them one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not? Oh. Yeah. So this is, this is a somewhat unique parable in the Gospel of Mark for reasons that we'll discuss, we'll actually see at the very end in verse 12. It's kind of different than uh, some of the others or um, the way it ends up working. Um, Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel were referred to as a vine in the Old Testament multiple times. A vine that is God's, um, his people that he cares for and kind of nurtures. But this story seems specifically to recall Isaiah 5. And Isaiah 5 um, talks about this. God says, I came and I planted this vineyard and I built up a tower in it and I made a wall and I dug out a pit to press it. Um, using all the details that Jesus just used when he tells this story. So that's how we know that Jesus is probably trying to get us to, to kind of hearken our memories back to Isaiah 5. And, and the story in Isaiah 5 is that God created this um, vineyard for his own purposes, for his own glory, and that vineyard, Israel, did not produce the, the fruit that God rightfully deserved from it. And so God says, because you're not producing fruit, because you're not doing what you're here supposed to do, I'm going to tear down your walls. I'm going to destroy this vineyard. I'm going to dig it up. 
And, uh, and so that's what seems to be kind of referenced here. So when, when Jesus says there was a man who had a vineyard and he went away and he leased it to tenants. By the way, that was a fairly common um, practice back then, especially I think in the area of Galilee, I'm told, is that wealthier landowners would have the land, but they weren't there, so they would just lease it out to tenants with, of course, the expectation that they would be paid rent, perhaps in the fruit that is actually coming from it. And so Jesus says there's this landowner and he had a vineyard and he built it and he built a tower up and he put a wall in it and then he left it there for tenants. Um, and, and so if, uh, just kind of follow along with it, he says that he left it there for tenants and then he sent a servant back to get it, um, to, to get some of the fruit from it. So if Israel is the vineyard, who are in this story, who would be the tenants that are taking care of the vineyard? the priests, the scribes, the elders, the religious leaders of Israel. Those are the tenants in Jesus' story. And it says that God sent, or it doesn't say God, but that's who we're talking about here, that landowner sent a servant back to get it, and they wouldn't give it to him. Um, they wouldn't give him any of the fruit, and they, they kind of beat him up and sent him away. And then he sent another one, and they treated that one shamefully, and they sent him away. And then they sent another one, and they killed that one, and, they, and, and, and it gets progressively worse. Who would the servants be in this story? The prophets, that over and over again, God sent his prophets, his servants to the leaders of Israel asking for fruit, asking for repentance, asking for obedience and commitment. And over and over again, they were rejected. And so lastly, Jesus says, the Father says, I know what I will do. I will send my beloved Son. Surely they will respect Him. And He sends them, and instead of respecting, they actually say, no, 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 if we can kill this guy off, then this is ours, and we get it all. And so they kill him, and of course that son is Jesus. Um, and, and so the, the parable becomes fairly explicit in it. Read verses 10 through 12. Here's how Jesus finishes up this story. Have you not read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All right. Um, the quote that Jesus says, Have you not read, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? That comes out of Psalm 118, specifically verses 22 and 23. Why, uh, the reason that's kind of cool, actually, is because Psalm 118 is the exact psalm that the people sang to Jesus from as he was coming down the mountain. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. And so Jesus is kind of saying, yeah, that song they sang about me also connected here. Um, he says that the, the stone that the builders had rejected, deemed not worthy, deemed we don't want it, has now become the cornerstone. Now, it could actually be cornerstone or capstone or keystone, but the same, the idea is the same. Probably cornerstone. Um, the cornerstone was, anytime you were building any sort of building, it was the first stone, a very large stone, that you sat in at one corner, and that was how you made sure the entire rest of the structure fell into place, was by making sure that the cornerstone was in right. And when that's in right, everything else falls in around it. And Jesus says that I am that cornerstone. I am that stone that the entire building will be built on. 
and, and I was rejected. I, I'm being rejected, but that will become the cornerstone. This becomes one of the favorite verses for the early church to quote about Jesus. Peter uses this. I believe Paul uses this over and over again. They come back to this and say, that's Jesus. Rejected by the builders, rejected by the leaders, and yet now he has become the cornerstone that everything else is built around. And it actually kind of, I think, is connected to this idea that the temple is going to go away, but a new building is going to be built up. That is Christ's building, his church, his own temple will be built up in that. Um, here's what makes this parable interesting is all the other parables in the Gospel of Mark were, were um, taught in a way that was supposed to keep like antagonists from ever discerning it. And even those kind of curious onlookers, Jesus says when they ask him about parables, he says, I tell them this so that they'll be ever hearing but never like discerning. That they'll see it but not quite get it. Remember, that's all his parables are designed to kind of confuse people except for those who are really intent on seeking out the truth. This parable, actually, the leaders, the religious leaders get it immediately, right? Like their eyes are opened immediately and they, they perceive that he's telling this parable about them. What's also interesting about this parable is that because they understand it, it's that understanding that is going to cause them to go fulfill it. Because he, has, because he has made this statement about them, their anger is stoked and they are set on killing him now, which is only fulfilling the very parable that Jesus told them was going to take place. Very kind of interesting. And, and, and through this section, we see Jesus coming at the religious leaders and at the religious institutions of the temple and in a way at the people as a whole, but mostly the leadership and the religious institutions over and over again for the state that they're in and the way that they've operated. And he's making some bold statements about how he is going to be the fulfillment and the replacement of those things. Um, we'll take a minute or two and then Scott will get up here and kind of fill us in on some other things. So, um, <clears throat> I, uh, in, in kind of preparing for, for today, I really was... Uh, you know, struck by the the comments that Jesus makes about these Pharisees, and so I started reading back through Mark um, every time he has an interaction with the Pharisees. And so, um, the things I want to share are, are we're going to look back at a few of those stories, and then also this one, and and see see some things that I think will be helpful. But you know, uh, Pharisees get a bad rap. And I don't know if you know their story or their history or how they came to be, but um, I, think it's, I think it's worth hearing a little bit more about them to, under, to appreciate and understand where they're coming from. So, starting back in the intertestimonial period, do you know what that is? The time between Malachi and Matthew. There was about 400 years approximately where God was silent. There was nothing being said. There was not a prophet um, preaching to his people. Well, why is that? Why would God be silent? Why would not God, why wouldn't God speak to, to his people? Well, the answer is complicated, but it's, it's in simple in some ways in that he had been telling them for centuries upon centuries that if you, if you stop, if you start ignoring my covenant, if you start walking away from the things I've asked you to do and um, disobeying me, then, then I'm going to do, several things are going to happen. And I'm going to do what it takes to, to get you to, to turn back to me. And 
And over and over and over they rejected his, his covenant. Over and over and over they chased other idols and disobeyed him. And they didn't stay in a relationship with him, which was their purpose, to stay in a relationship with God so that they could represent God to, to the world and God's ways to the world in order to bring, to bring restoration and redemption to this world, to carry out the responsibilities that God had given this group of people um, to, to bring redemption and restoration, which is kind of the bigger story of God. And they, they, chose, they chose to ignore that. They chose to reject that covenant and, and turn and go their own way. And so by the time we get to around 400 B.C., um, is, is after Israel has been in captivity, they were both, both the northern and the southern, they were destroyed by um, these world powers, came in and took them over and took them prisoner and, and then released them kind of, sort of, although they're still being ruled over and let them build a kind of a mock, a, a worse tiny version of the, the, the grand temple that Solomon built because it, it had been destroyed. And, and it, it was just kind of a pathetic um, attempt at reestablishing what God had established 600 years before. But it was, you know, it was kind of what they had, and it was, it was okay. And um, In fact, when, it, when the temple was constructed, the elders that were alive, when they saw it, they, they, they were alive and old enough to see Solomon's temple. When everybody was celebrating the temple was built, they were crying because they remember what it used to look like. And, and then you enter into this, this period, and, and over, this, over this course of the time, they decided, instead of this side of the, of, the, of the spectrum where they were just disobedient and idolatrous, they, they started slowly swinging the pendulum, and then it picked up speed quickly, and they, they established an order. They established a group of, of Sadducees and Pharisees and Essenes and scribes and the and these lawyers and their job was to to know the law so well okay whereas before they didn't read the law they didn't read God's covenant they didn't they didn't look at these things and instead they they were going to know his law so well that that nobody was going to break a law and this is how we're going to get God to speak and God back and this is how we're going to finally become this this world power that we're destined to become. We're going we're gonna to live by the book. And, and that's, that's how the pendulum swung. And so, instead of just following God's laws, they actually created their own rules, set up as boundaries around God's laws, and then they s- slowly started wanting people to live by their boundaries and not by God's word. And so this is, this is the Pharisees. This is the group of people that set out to, to help the people, help God's people know God's word and know His covenant with them. And, 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 and Drew said it, like this is the group that he speaks the harshest to over and over and over. And, and since, I, you know, when I look around here, um, I think I, I can buy. I think I can ask this question, um, but who who in here? I, I don't think anybody's going to raise their hand. So if if you raise your hand, I, I would love to talk to you because I'd, I'd really like to get to know your story. But who who in here 
um, doesn't have anybody in their immediate family that's a Christian, or maybe uh, a grandparent or an aunt, an influential grandparent or aunt who's a Christian. Um, Somebody raise your hand. If if you're you're a first generation Christian in your family, your immediate family, or in like, you know, your like uh, close family, grandparents, aunts and uncles that are influential. Anybody in here, not have a Christian in that category? Okay, so I didn't think so. So we're all we're all in this. We're all. I think it was Rachel. Somebody did this probably a couple months ago, and we were all Drew and Rachel and I were kind of surprised. Like, there's. There's no first-generation Christians in here. Um, so that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. I'm just saying it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. So, like if, if we were in Portland, that'd be a different story. If we were in you know, the East Coast, that, that'd be a different story. If we were in different parts of the world, that'd be a, definitely a different story. But we're in, we're in the middle of Oklahoma. We're in, we're in the Bible Belt. We're in the Midwest where everyone's a Christian. <laughs> I know why. I know why you're laughing. Um, so, 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 if any group of people that is used to church um, around Christians um, that can easily s- mistake cultural Christianity for Christian culture, so cultural Christianity is culture that determines culture that kind of uses Christianity to, to make itself, you know, paint itself as if it's Christian, but it's really driven by culture, versus Christian, Christian culture, which is where the gospel shapes the way people live out their life, grace and truth and love and freedom. and Like when, when those things start to, and forgiveness, when those things start to shape the way people live and, and, the, way, and the, the way communities act, that's Christian culture. That's a beautiful thing. Cultural Christianity is something that we all should be leery of. Um, and and, and you, you, you all are going to raise children if the Lord tarries. Uh, you got to throw in little words just to make him happy once in a while. Throw in a little King James and he feels like he's right at home. I don't know. But, like, you're going to raise kids in, in a culture that is more and more anti-Christ, that more, more and more antagonistic towards the things of Jesus. They're, like, they're going, to, they're, going to, they're going to want less and less of Jesus as this culture goes. So you all need to know that, if you don't already. That's happening. Now, it, we, may, we may be in a Midwest or Bible Belt bubble in some sense, but it's moving from the outside in, and it's coming. And so, so here, here's, here's the good news is, um, the good news is that we can be like Pharisees sometimes. And Jesus has a lot of good things to say to us. He has a lot of very, he has a lot, a lot of ways to warn us, um, on, on, on these things. And so, um, I, I get what I, what I mean by good news is, like you and I can recognize now, wow, we, we need to be careful that we don't, we don't become like the Pharisees. And so I thought, maybe in a, in a reverse, awkward, opposite, backwards kind of way, um, we're going to actually just talk about 
how to be a good Pharisee. <laughs> and, um, and maybe this will help. So turn to, turn to Mark chapter 2. So if you want to, um, if you want to follow Christ less and less and um, rely on religion more and more, this will be a really helpful list. I'm going to give you six ways to become a good Pharisee. Six ways to become a really good Pharisee. And we're going to look at three stories in 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 Mark. Uh, Alec. Uh, turn your phone on, okay, and um, look at, read Mark two thirteen through 17. He went on again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus, and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so this guy Levi, we think, is actually Matthew, the guy who wrote, writes the the Gospel of Matthew. Was a was a tax collector, and tax collectors is not. I mean, you you know this, but they're they're not just like. Um, it's, they're not like the guy Toby from the Office, okay? Just some you know the HR guy or the accountant that nobody likes, the guy that audits you, and uh, he's kind of annoying, and and that's not that's not he's not just. Tax collectors aren't just like mean IRS agents that come in to make sure you paid your taxes. Um, they're actually guys working for the enemy. They're, they're Jewish people hired by the Romans, paid by the Romans. Actually, they're taxing their own people to pay the Roman army to oppress the, their own people. And then they're taking a little off the top for themselves. So they're a lot of times wealthy men, but, but the Jewish people saw them as like scum of the earth. Always lump them in with these other wicked people, according to, to them. And so here at Levi, Jesus says, follow me. He says something crazy, because rabbis in those days didn't ask somebody to follow them. Oh my gosh, is it really 10 after? Wow. Okay. Uh, anyway, Matthew follows. And so listen, what, what Jesus says here is pretty interesting. He says, I want to talk about the, the, the patients, like a, a patient and the doctors, okay? Um, he says, those who are sick recognize their need for a doctor. He, I don't believe he's saying to the Pharisees, you guys are fine. Listen, you guys are fine. I came for all these messed up people. I think he's saying, um, you know, the Pharisees didn't recognize they were sick. They, they, they didn't see their own sickness and see their need for um, for for Jesus. And so... If you want to be a good Pharisee, the first thing you do is you forget that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Um, you, you forget that you actually need grace to, to breathe every single day. 
like the fact that you made it here in your car, the fact you have a car, the fact that you are able to be at school, the fact that you have a really, really hard test coming up, all of it is a blessing and by grace and and that the fact that um, God allows you to do the things you do even though you take for granted His blessings, you you don't give credit to Him like I don't. I mean, it's by the grace of God. And and so, to be a good Pharisee, you've got to really just forget the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You've got to really believe that you've got it all figured out. That, that yeah, you, had it, you were messed up once, you fixed that, and now you're good. The, the next thing he says is it, it, fun to think about, but think about the doctor. Because in this, in this particular story, Jesus is kind of the physician. And Jesus is a good doctor. And good doctors, um, they don't love the sickness. They, they care for the patient. They don't love focusing on the sickness. They don't love seeing sickness. They love caring for patients. And, and so to be a good Pharisee, you focus on other people's sin instead of loving the sinner. Focus on other other sin. Focus on how messed up people are. Um, watch Fox News. That'll help. I'm kidding. That's lo- it's lost on this generation. Wish my dad were here. It really it really sting. Um, but no, I mean you just look around and complain about how bad the world is and how ba- how messed up people are and. Um, and yeah, just keep keep them, keep focusing on people, on people's sin, and and not caring for the sinner. Next, well, actually, we're not not gonna we're, we gotta we gotta we gotta add something to this because the reality is in Christ, this is who we are. We are wounded healers. It's a phrase that Henry Nouwen wrote a book called Wounded Healers. We are wounded healers who recognize our need for mercy. Wounded healers who recognize our need for mercy. Um, this Psalm 51, David, David writes Psalm 51, and it's, it's probably the most, the most beautiful prayer of repentance in the Bible. It comes right on the heels of when David is confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. And uh, he, you know, he sees this woman, and he, and he wants her, and so he takes her, and he sleeps with her, and he gets her pregnant. Then he realizes, oh, she's pregnant, and she's got a husband. But he's one of my commanders, so I'm in, I'm in control of this. I'll make him come. I'll have him sleep with his wife, and I'll cover it up. And he, and, and Uriah is too honorable, and he won't do it. And so he sends Uriah back to the to the war, and tells the commander Joab, put Uriah in the front, and when the battle's the hottest, pull back so that Uriah dies. So basically, sends him to his death, because he's king. He can do whatever he wants, and. And then when Bathsheba's done crying over her dead husband, he takes her as his wife and she bears him a child. And Nathan, the prophet, shows up to confront him and David repents. David recognizes that he sins, he sinned against the Lord and it says something interesting. The Lord says, I have put away your, I have put away your, your sin, David, but your son must die. And so David, now he's not only committed adultery, and had the husband murdered, but now his baby is going to die because of his sin. And David writes Psalm 51 from that context. And, and so we get a glimpse of what this looks like when, when, as a repentant confession. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Watch me, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So, we are wounded healers who recognize our need for mercy in Christ. But, um, we, need, we have a couple more, couple more ways we can learn how to be good Pharisees. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Um, starting at verse 5. Alec, read, read Mark 7, 5 through 7. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy, prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people on me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay. You want to be a good Pharisee? Belt the words to the song when your heart is far from God. So, of course, this isn't just about singing songs. This, is, this could be about talking the Christian talk, like, um, you know, learning, learning the lingo learning how to use the word blessed a lot. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's learning how to, to use the language in, in, a, in a Christian context that, that kind of puts this era or aura of, I'm good, I'm, I'm holy, I'm, I'm, I'm saved. And when really there's, there's a heart that's not, Close to God. There's a desire that's not. There's there's not a heart for God there. Um, it, there's a disconnectedness to to what 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 we're saying and actually what we're believing with with life action. Um, you also see. So read read the next several verses, eight through thirteen. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Okay, so if you want to be a good Pharisee, change the gospel of Jesus to the to a gospel you control. Um, change the gospel from the gospel of Jesus, which He gets to come and determine, and we submit to it. It, it confronts us. It confronts us at every at every level, and it, and it, every culture at some level is offended by the gospel. That's the beauty of it. It stands outside of any culture, any time. That any culture, any time, should, should hear the gospel, and at some level it should hurt, it should sting. It's like, oh, i got to sacrifice that? i gotta, I got to give that up? i got to die to that? Yes, that's the gospel of Jesus. But to be a good Pharisee, just change it to a gospel that you control, that you get to decide. And that's what the Pharisees did. Um, they, they created their own boundaries around the, cov- the, the law of God and, and therefore creating their own covenant.
commandments of God, therefore acting like God. And, and they were in control of it. And he went after them over and over and over. And we like when we are in control. It's way easier to be in control. Listen to, um, well, control is comfort. Um, control is safe. Control is, um, gives you power over others. And we like that power. Let's be honest. The power is comfortable and safe. And, and, uh, but that's the gospel of Jesus isn't comfortable or safe and doesn't give us any power over others. In fact, it, it, makes, it makes us servants to others. Listen to what uh, Henry Nouwen says. He says, What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? So maybe it, it is the, that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to, to own life than to love life. He says, The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. He said, If there's one thing that's been made clear, is the temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. In other words, when... When intimacy with God or intimacy with others, where I have to be open and vulnerable with, with God and others, when, when that is a threat to me, then, then the temptation to be powerful is irresistible. Um, see, in, in Christ, confession and repentance are a regular part of our life. Like, the gospel of Jesus calls us to this life of confession and repentance. This is how we... This is how we stay um, in tune to God. This is how we follow His Spirit. This is how we live our life. This is how we stay in submission to Him so that we can stay in relationship with Him so that we can represent Him and then fulfill the responsibilities He's given us. Um, David says in Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, and he confesses, David says. He says it in Psalm, sorry, in 2 Samuel 11. He says it at the end in, in the presence of Nathan. And he says that almost the exact, this, this exact phrase. But against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's a confession that recognizes, yeah, I've, my sins hurt other people, but first and foremost, my sin has hurt God. And, and there's confession and repentance in acknowledging that so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Last story is in our, story, our text today, Mark 11, which Drew's read through and, and taught through and helped us understand the context here. Um, so I'm going to jump to this first one, which is, to be a good Pharisee, you equate church activities with fruit of the Spirit. Um, equate church activities with fruit of the Spirit. I've seen this actually, you know, and I've been in ministry almost 16 years, and um, I've seen, seen how easy it is for people to fill their schedules with Bible studies and church things, and, and um, can be so busy doing that that they never really take time to, to, to ask God, what is it you're saying through these things, what is it you're revealing? How are you 
um, you know, what are you calling me to? And where, uh, what, what, what new thing are you doing in me that I need to trust you for and surrender to? And it's really easy to, to fill our schedules and our calendars with church activities and, and to think I'm good. I'm, I'm really busy doing church things. Um, it's easy as a pastor to do that, by the way. It's very, actually, very easy. It's, it's, it's natural to do that. And so um, there's got to be a regular time of confession and repentance. And you see this in our text. You see um, that, that there, Jesus' accusation, like I love how this, this story, this fig tree bookends this, this cleansing of the temple. And Jesus doesn't hold anything back. And um, he, he, he's calling them to step out of their den and embrace you know, the things that get, just because they're hiding in this place doesn't mean um, that they are close to God, that they are right with Him. And so uh, we can do that too. The next one is, to be a good Pharisee, you hide from the world instead of having a heart for the nations. And, and when, as I was studying through this, what really struck me about this den of robbers idea is... Um, I think I think of all of them. This one can be probably the hardest for us. The most, um, the the one that we would uh, most challenging for us, because 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 the world is is becoming less and less Christian or or for Christ, um, and we're living in a world that's going to be antagonistic towards Jesus. Um, it'll be easy to to just hide in a bubble, and. And uh, I can imagine on, on the campus of OSU, easy to just stay close with the people in this room or the people in your table group or the people that you know are safe and to not be around others and to not allow yourself to, um, to be in other, to, 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 to have a heart for those that aren't in, inside God's family. And, but yet as a, as a follower of Jesus, like we don't really have that option. Like, Jesus had a heart for the nations. God, from the beginning, has had a heart for the nations, as Drew mentioned, starting, I mean, going back as easily, if not, if not before, but easily by Genesis 12, when God is establishing this covenant with Abraham to bless all people. That's always been his heart. Always been his heart. And, and, and never created any sort of religious thing um, so that we could hide, but always created uh, a covenant with his people to to have a relationship with them, so that so that they could represent him to the world, and then carry out the responsibilities to bring redemption and restoration. That's that's our heart. That's what that's what God is going to will produce in us as we trust and surrender to Him. So in Christ, God produces a desire in, in us to see. To see all people reconciled to God. To see all nations reconciled to God. And we've never been called to hide. To use church activities as a way to avoid loving the nations. Loving the people that God's put uh, around us. Um, David says in Psalm 51 verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me a willing spirit. And he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Um, you know, that this, this change my heart so that, so that I may go out. And this prayer that I've been praying, Lord, change me from the inside out so that I may go out and bring people in. Lord, change me from the inside out um, so that by your fruit and, and your, as you produce in me a desire for, so that I may go out, so that I may have eyes to see the people that you've put in my life, so that I can invite them in um, to relationship with you, so that I can represent you to them, so that I can um, point them to you, so that I can just be your hands and feet wherever you have me um, to bring people into reconciliation with you. And may that be our heart. Um, I think we're going to sing. And so we're going to have an opportunity. Now, I love, I love this idea that, that Jim has taught me that... Sometimes we sing words, and, and we sing the words, and the words are here like, Lord, you are everything to me, right? We say that, we sing that, but then the reality is here, right? And the beautiful thing is, I don't think it means we don't sing the words. I think it just means that we, God is helping us see the gap that's in between. And so we sing the words, and we trust God for the grace in between to say, God, move this. This is where I'm at. I wish, I wish I, you were all that I need, but the truth is I have Walmart. And so help me to realize that I need you than, more than I need Walmart. Or, I don't know, Panda or whatever. Um, an iPhone. Uh, so, so, like, God, help me fill in the gap. So I'm going to pray, and then you guys are going to come up here and do something, right? Okay. Let me get off the. Okay, you got it. Somebody want to hit those lights too? I'll turn these on. All right, let me pray. God, I pray that um, we would worship you, that we would, Lord, that this would be an opportunity um, of confession, of worship, um, that it would be uh, just an opportunity for us to give back to you and to, to proclaim you for who you are and give you what you deserve. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sure.